hustling every day i'm 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 welcome to the healthcare hustle podcast tune in each month with Nigel and Winston as they speak with leaders of color across the healthcare industry on topics ranging from the biggest challenges facing our communities to advice for early and mid-level careers What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle podcast. Today, we are speaking with the Executive Director of Business Affairs of Pathology and Immunology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Andwele Jolly. Andwele, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right, and thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, Andwele, so just tell us a little bit about where your story begins. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Immediate Rest, where the story begins like right in the middle of my life experience. And uh, one of the earliest memories that comes to my mind is sitting at the kitchen table and my dad going, again. And then I recite the quote from Henry, uh, Henry uh, Longfellow that goes, the heights of great men reached and kept were not attained by sudden flight, but they, while their companions slept, were toiling upwards in a night. And he would walk around the house an hour later two hours later, again, and I would have to recite the same line. And, you know, people say, well, why do you start there? Because um, my parents are uh, immigrants from Dominica and Jamaica, and they struggled to get here. Um, And I'm first generation American. And I watched them tirelessly work through the night um, just so that I could succeed. Um, And I, and I wake up each day thinking about that as I um, went through school, as I went through my career. Um, and that sort of brings me to where I am today. Um, and so I'm thankful for having two loving parents who did a lot of work to make sure that I, that I, that I had success in my life. Mm, man, so, you know, I could already imagine kind of that Caribbean kind of strict focus, you know, upbringing definitely kind of sets you in terms of, you know, your leadership style and capabilities on a path for success. But what was it in terms of, you know, just life or interest that led you into a career in healthcare? Uh, even, oh man, that's a tough question. Um, I think, again, I'll, I'll pivot back to my parents. My mom's a public health professor. And so um, I grew up in a household where she spoke in terms uh, that I may have not always understood until I got later on in my career, but in terms of health inequity, uh, health disparities, all those things I grew up listening and hearing about. My dad's an economic professor, World Trade Economics. Um, and rural sociology. So um, understanding sociology, epidemiology, public health were topics that were always at the dinner table, one form or another. Um, And so I grew up in an environment where I saw inequities every day, whether it was within uh, my community or within the classroom. And so uh, those are my early experiences and exposures to healthcare. Um, I also had an aunt who was a physical therapist um, and that's how I began my career in the healthcare was a, uh, as a physical therapist, and now I'm in a health administrator. But overall, my general philosophy and approach to healthcare has always been around how do we address the inequities and barriers and, um, to enable access um, and equitable and high um, value, high value and um, optimal care to improve the life and well-being of those we serve. Um, and so that's sort of how I got started in healthcare, just um, just listen to my parents every day at the dining, dining room table. Yeah, there's so much awesome stuff there from talks with 
mean, world-class professors from a young age to having an aunt who's in physical therapy to the passion that you have yourself. So talk us a little bit through that, that path. What, what exactly sparked you down physical therapy to start and where did you go from there? So, um, why physical therapy? Um, and, uh, Growing up in high school, I did a lot of sports, played basketball, ran track and whatnot. But I uh, had Oscar Slaughter's, this sort of disease of the knee, um, where during your growth spurt, you sort of have these mini avulsion fractures by right below your kneecap. Um, and along the way, my doctors always said, you know, just take some Advil, ice. You may have to stop running and stop doing sports or whatnot. And I'm like, well, that's well, that's not fixing the problem. It's just telling me not to do things or covering it up with pain meds. Um, and then later on in college, I remember at a party, it's kind of embarrassing. I was doing the uh, Tootsie Roll or the Butterfly, depending on where you're from, and my kneecap popped out in Sublux, and and, uh, and I had to be on crutches for two weeks. I could barely walk. It's kind of embarrassing when people see you on, on campus, like, what, are you, what, what happened? Well, I don't want to tell you. And then I got sent to physical therapy for the first time as a patient. And I worked with my physical therapist who understood and did a lot of biomechanics and assessment of my alignment and really taught me how to use my body appropriately and, and manage through with the, my muscles and tendons. And, and, and um, I got stronger and better. And, and since then, never had my kneecap sublux uh, again. Um, and I've since been able to run um, and do other things that I wanted to do. And I thought that was an amazing experience. Uh, all these years, I could have been in physical therapy. Um, um, and then once I found out what it was, I was like, well, I don't have to cut anybody open or give anyone medication just to make them better and live a functional life. Um, and so that's what sparked me again to physical therapy. That's really awesome. And I, I think something I'm interested in, and I think our listeners would be interested in, is just what made you want to take the, the jump from being a practitioner out on the floor, working directly with the patients to working in administration, or as I hear it called by our practitioners in the back office on the finances and the operations, what, what made you want to take that jump? Uh, there, there were sort of two moments. Um, the first moment was uh, my first job as a physical therapist. Um, and in every meeting we had as a team meeting, as a young uh, orthopedic rehab physical therapist, uh, we would have these ideas that we wanted to implement, or there were ideas from the hospital or push down um, that didn't always make sense to me as a as a practitioner. Um, but in all the meetings, in every single meeting, you know, you know, you had some meetings with your chief operating officer, you had some meetings with your chief nursing officer, or chief rehab officer. But consistently, there was always one person in the room, the chief financial officer, who either gave the thumbs down or thumbs up to an idea. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's an amazing amount of power to have is to, you know, and, and um, influence one could have in terms of what happens to the provider or the patient. Um, that it was not always about uh, evidence-based practices you're taught in the classroom, but really about what can be feasibly done. So that was my first exposure to health administration were meetings and the, uh, leadership meetings as a staff therapist, understanding that uh, the financial flow was a big influencer as to what guided my ability to meet the expectations of my patients. And then later on, I went into private practice, um, and this time was for a for-profit private uh, group and um, working with high school athletes. Again, I always wanted to go back to where I thought I should have had the intervention uh, for myself, and, and selfishly, I always wanted to work with high school athletes. And I 
I was always frustrated because uh, I was a team physical therapist for this high school in my neighborhood. It was fairly economically diverse. Um, but I, again, I saw the, the difference between a, an athlete being a starter or getting that college, college scholarship was whether or not they had health insurance. Um, and because I was for-profit private, um, we were capped in, in terms of who we could see in terms of Medicaid or uninsured. Um, and again, um, I'm working in the high school, in the, in the treatment room, and all the athletes, and having to say no to student athlete A and student athlete B, knowing A was probably the better athlete, um, but his career was done, effectively done, because of lack of access to healthcare. Um, and, um, and so that got me more involved in wanting to figure out how do I develop an economic model? How do I work with practitioners and administrators to figure out a way that no one is denied care just because of who they are, where they live, or what insurance they may have? Wow. I just, we're breaking here. That was a really, that's, that's really interesting and insightful. You never shared that one with me, man. That's, 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 that's interesting. It was, it was wild. I mean, uh, one kid had an ACL and that was it. He was uninsured wow. and they said, well, try to rehab it. And he was done. I mean, yes, he was functional. He could walk, but you know, no surgery, yeah. no rehab. Walk with the that's just it's such an interesting way even thinking about you know the implications of healthcare and the issues you don't even think about it on that pathway right like the the difference from because i can imagine the narrative in you know underserved you know communities obviously where we have like star athletes but just that even being another burden in terms of making it to the league making it out of poverty all of it you know healthcare mm-hmm. that's that's a, just that's that's unique it's an extremely unique perspective yeah, you have, I mean, it's just amazing. Just And then, so, you know, what do you do? Um, uh, you know, creative ways, you know, taking it out of my own pocket, you know, talking to my leadership. Like, I'll, I'll see the, the patient pro bono while you have to see them outside of clinic time, you know, yeah. outside of the operation. You know, you can't let your volume drop with your insured patients. Okay, fine. So I, now I'm coming in early or staying late to see the patients for free. Um, but it was also free for me. Um, but mm-hmm. that's, that's the system. And people think, well, you know, we go Medicare for all. We do all these different things. People won't have access. I'm like, people don't have access now. You know, we just don't right. see. We just don't see them. We just don't see them. Uh, yeah. So I was just going to say. So coming from a, I recently transitioned out of a role as a, a billing manager here at the institution. I know that that was probably the most difficult part of the job for me, as you just see patients who desperately, desperately need to see a highly specialized neurologist. You know, maybe a, a kiddo who's who's struggling and who has palsy or has seizures and can't even function in school. And it would often come to me to kind of make the call. I'm like, are we going to see this patient or not? Are we going to take this write off or for our non-healthcare listeners, are we going to take the hit and see this patient for free? So how have you brought those same experiences as a physical therapist to your role now as an administrator here? Yeah. Wow. Oh, <laughs> that's a, that's a very, um, uh, you know, tough question. Um, because those those same principles of me uh, having uh, to work diligently to make sure um, on the administrative end that we can afford to make those trade-offs, right? So we do have a mission here at the University of Washington University School of Medicine um, that we meet the needs of our, our patients in our community. Um, and so part of it, you know, even in my own practice back in Georgia, was looking at the overall financial financials. How many? It's, you you won't be able to. Just, to handle all 
the problems, all the write-offs, right? No, you know, no right. margin of mission. Uh, but you, but you work hard and diligent and say, you know, to your faculty, to your providers, um, how much more are you willing to do over uh, on, you know, over here and over here being, um, in revenue generating, uh, arena, uh, to help accommodate or make room for things that don't necessarily make you money, but are important to the mission because you, you will not be, uh, the physician or the provider, the nurse practitioner that you want to be. If you're only isolating yourself out to who you want to see versus those who need your expertise and care, um, and so so um, it's about finding for me what drives that provider, right? Uh, what allows them to be successful, um, and then what allows them uh, tapping into their humanity, they're tapping into their humanity to say, you know, what they also deserve your time and attention. Um, and most of the times, I can get uh, the providers on that level. Um, to maybe see the extra or do the extra um, uh, just because it, it is demanded of us as, as providers. I mean, you have to make sure you protect the house. And so that's being diligent about understanding your numbers, your finances, and, and where you can say we can afford to do this. Um, because, you know, as much as we don't want to think about it, you know, healthcare is a economic model here in the U.S. And so... Um, uh, just like you do in the airlines, you know, people, you know, you have your, your platinum members, you have your, you know, your silver, gold medallion, whatever. I mean, that's healthcare. You know, some people got to sit and coach. Some people don't make the flight. Some people got to fly standby. And and this is the decision we make um, every day in the model that we have here in the United States. Um, and it's unpleasant. It's ugly. We try to cover it up, but it, that that's how it goes. Um, um, we are making accommodations every time we see someone who's uninsured, underinsured or uninsured or who cannot afford it. We, we say we write it off. Um, and I don't believe anyone needs to be written off. So can you uh, just go a little bit more into kind of your current role, um, re really what that looks like and just kind of associate that with everything we're talking about now? How do you make things better for people, particularly our folks? Yeah, uh, great question. And so I, I over time, my career has morphed into uh, less patient-facing uh, roles, right? So pathology and immunology uh, department here at Washington University uh, is sort of twofold. You have the uh, immunobiology division, which is more basic science and focused on, on research, and you have the pathology department, which is, uh, for, you know, mostly uh, diagnostics um, and, and, um, and laboratory uh, 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 identification and treatment. Um, and so my day-to-day role here in the department is, you know, it ranges um, from uh, the financial aspects of the department, making sure we have that, and then operationally working with my providers, uh, my faculty, my, my clinical uh, folks to make sure that, you know, the turnaround times and you, everyone gets the results back to the provider and to you if you're sending in specimens that needs diagnostics. So if we suspect cancer, that tumor comes to us for diagnostics. Um, but I will say that, um, Pathology is on the cutting edge of precision medicine, and something we need to pay, pay attention to in terms of uh, how do how you know as as drug ther uh, therapies and vaccines and so forth are coming on shelf, um, as as folks devise treatment protocols around, uh, for instance, cancer, um, we're getting much more precise based on your DNA makeup. How do we customize that care? Do you need radiation? Do you need chemo? You know, how do we know based on your profile? what treatment you deserve. And if you are not part of the mix, um, if, you're not, if we're not paying attention to precision medicine as much as we are 
paying attention to the patient care facing side of health disparities, um, I think the gap will continue to widen, right? So we may get you the access to care, but now is, is your profile within the system? Right. Are we participating in clinical trials? Are we capturing your, your, your DNA and your genetic information so we can understand the variants and, and understanding how we can customize your treatment plan? Um, and so I think pathology has a responsibility uh, along with patient-facing um, providers to understand all facets of care, whether it's, on the, whether it's on the patient care side or the diagnostic side or the treatment side, um, uh, that, that we're, we're keeping a focus on um, how do we narrow that, that gap in inequality um, and health disparities. And so from my side, I bring forth you know, not only the operational and the financial aspects of solvency, but also the programmatic aspects of keeping that lens of health equity in front of my providers and staff uh, in the department. So I kind of want to pivot, but not necessarily, and kind of focus on the now. Um, so obviously this past year, ridiculously crazy, um, you know, for, for all of us, but, you know, for yourself, just as someone who is a leader in the space, um, you know, what are your thoughts initially just on the pandemic? How did, did the pandemic kind of disrupt or interrupt your business, transform your business? Are there implications um, in the department for things that you all could do better? Just could you kind of speak to that a little bit? And I think no, all, absolutely. You know, just, yeah. just, just knowing you a little bit, I know you started this role right before the pandemic hit. So you could, if you could also just talk to us about what that's like coming into this executive level leadership role and then the pandemic hits us. Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, too loaded. I mean, that's, I mean, every question that's thrown at me are pretty heavy tonight. Um, and uh, wow, I came into this role into the pathology department um, in September, you know, so three months before or so the first diagno diagnosed case in, in the U S um, and started getting into my role uh you know, after, you know, the first 90 days and then, then boom, all of a sudden, you know, uh, a pandemic hits and my department um, in partnership with Barnes Jewish Hospital uh, are the ones setting up the COVID tests, right? So not, not only am I trying to learn how to, one, be an executive, period, um, but then learning pathology and immunology as a discipline, so different than medicine where I was from before and so different from rehabilitation where I was at the start of my career. So learning the jargon, learning what the field is, um, learning how to be a leader of other uh, leaders, um, and then dealing with the crisis of now the university at large, and maybe the, even the health system at BJC, wanting to understand what are we doing for COVID testing? What are we going to be doing for developing the, the vaccine and the research around treatment? Um, and so um, it was a crazy time. It was fast. It's still crazy. It hasn't slowed down. And I've learned a lot, you know, it's uh, just jumping in head first and then relying on the expertise of those around me, those who know um, uh, the, the, the actual um, uh, details and, and, and um, uh, of laboratory management, and then putting my lens of uh, just organizational leadership, right? How do you align the right people, the right uh, resources to make sure that the job gets done and things stay on track, right? So that was my role within the larger uh, pie, um, but the pandemic itself is is, um, is is disheartening because none of it, uh, where we are today in terms of either the uh, infection rate and or the deaths related to COVID, is is um, is unfortunate. 
you know, to put it euphemistically and, and, and harshly, you could almost say it's criminal, um, especially from uh, what we know um, and my mom, right? Again, this is stuff I knew from the kitchen table from as a child, um, her speaking about public health and epidemiology um, and about uh, communicable diseases and how we prevent them. Um, the simple measures of just wearing a mask and you know just a little further away and, and, and we should have always been washing our hands. I, I, don't, I don't understand where that became an epiphany, um, but uh, for some it is, <laughs> right? And, and it, these aren't hard things to do to sacrifice um, uh, just so that others can live a healthy life, right? Those who are more vulnerable for whatever reason. Um, and so um, we're doing our part to make sure that we have testing availability. Um, we're doing our part to help um, lead on vaccine and treatment for COVID-19 as a department of pathology and immunology. We're doing our part in terms of, of our managing our operations so that folks are abiding by the CDC guidelines. Um, and, uh, and we just need everyone, I think, in, our, in all communities to realize that how serious this is um, and how important it is that we protect each other from this virus. That was as a fellow. That was it. Was it was interesting times. I think at the onset of the pandemic, um, because I could kind of see the breakdown in terms of the cascade of communication from the federal level all the way to what was happening with you know hospital leadership. Um, so I can only imagine just how difficult of a position it was, uh, just being a newly you know uh, appointed executive in this space. But you know, how was 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 there anything political that you had to navigate? You know, in just terms of the the science and some of the discussion, and maybe you know the speed at which you know we were moving early on, or even just you know in your own space, kind of outside of work, still with the expertise of a you know healthcare professional. How did you balance you know all of that you know just crazy disconnectedness between you know the government, you know the scientists, and the healthcare industry? Oh man. Um... Uh, you know, so it, it's interesting. The, the science community um, has always been on one page. You know, um, whether it is uh, folks at the national level, with Dr. Fauci, uh, CDC, um, uh, even here regionally with Missouri Foundation for Health or the Regional Health Commission or wherever, um, a COVID response team, uh, the university, BJC, our friends at other hospitals, we always, you know, the science is pretty clear. Uh, the politics of wanting to do as much as we could or can quickly, uh, that's always been real. Um, the challenge around politics maybe would be around resources, right? So even if we were to stand up all the testing we wanted to, the question is then, well, then how? You know, how do we make it? Who, who gets access to it? So there's a little politics around, uh, you know, do we have enough healthcare? providers to stand up, you know, to, to run the, the labs. Um, so that was a challenge in terms of workforce shortage, um, and which was persistent before a pandemic. So a pandemic only like sort of exposes all the challenges you had before the pandemic. It doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, bring to light anything new other than what you already know, knew, or know or, or knew about your circumstances as a provider organization. Um, and so if there were politics, it was really about how do we make sure that those who need access to the resources get it quickly? Um, but for the most part, everyone was aligned with what we need to do from a scientific standpoint, how to prevent um, and manage the disease. Um, so there was, you know, so um, then there's the external politics around, um, 
you know, what the uh, uh, soon-to-be former president presidential administration, where there's a tension between the economics, um, where there was a, a false choice between, you know, keeping businesses open and things like that in the community and abiding by CDC guidelines, not recognizing that following CDC guidelines was the quickest and the most efficient way to restore our business, small business community and, and broader economics for the country. And so um, it, it was it was tough as a provider organization to watch um, certain parts of our, our presidential administration um, uh, not encourage as much as I think they could the use of masks, the use of social distancing. Um, and, um, and, and that's, I think, in part why we are where we are today. So, the, but the topics, you know, I think we really have left um, specific are, are, you know, challenges in healthcare, kind of specific to, you know, our community or our communities of color and just from your vantage point, what those challenges are. And then kind of more so advice per se, um, just kind of on your journey as you reflect, as you look back, things that you would uh, kind of want to speak to. In, in terms of challenges in healthcare, um, and tomorrow is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, day, and um, and I'll, I'll leave, leave, um, answer that question with a quote of his, which is, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhuman, mm-hmm. right? And you may hear in other people say inhumane, um, but I think the original quote was inhuman, um, because I really do believe that it, it lacks a certain level of humanity to not realize that we all are deserving of healthcare. Uh, we're all deserving of living a healthy and functional life. Um, and for too long, the inequalities in, in, in communities of color are, are, are just um, in, inhumane, inhuman, and unimaginable. Um, and I would say the largest challenge in healthcare is the lack of imagination mm. that these inequities these disparities exist because of implicit and explicit bias in our healthcare system. That it's pervasive, it's structural, and it takes another level of imagination to change it. That how we're rendering care today is not optimal. And for too many, it falls short of their most sacred oath as a provider, which is to first do no harm. We're doing harm every day in the system that we practice in because we lack the imagination and understanding and, and uh, willingness to, to really rethink and reshape how we provide care. Um, and so uh, my, my, um, you know, my, my advice on that issue is to say, you know, let, let's, let's start over. Let's really start over. Start over with a, with a health equity lens and start mapping out the process by which you would render care and to who and to how. Um, it has to be personalized, it has to be relevant, it has to be meaningful, and it has to link to the outcomes for that individual. Um, and so um, so our, I would say, you know, our, our largest challenge is, you know, when you hear all that, you know, you hear it all the time, I can't believe that would happen. Oh, no, that doesn't make any sense. Um, how? How is that possible? It's possible. It is possible because we lack the imagination to believe that people, people of color and specifically black people are experiencing a certain level of care that's suboptimal. When you have people uh, in the emergency department with long bone fractures are 20 to 30% less likely to receive pain medication. 
compared to their white counterpart. Um, where uh, medical medical residents and fellows are still thinking that uh, myths that what what uh, black people's skin are what forty percent thicker, you know, yes. all kind of yeah, all all kind of things, um, you know, um, that lead to um, how decisions are being made about a person's health, um, and and what it, it just it just needs to change, um, and and I think it can. And I think it will. I think uh, the National Association of Health Services Executives, NASI, is a leader on that forefront, raising policy issues. Um, I think the National Medical Association and other provider organizations who are dedicated to this work will continue to push the envelope and continue to um, ask the, the relevant questions, pertinent questions, and do the work that's necessary to make sure that we really um, live out to our best selves when we provide care to people of color. Folks can't say, can't really just imagine yeah. How it, it it does, it does. Even even here on campus, we were talking about uh, I think um, uh, uh, Winston about the sickle cell, uh, um, patients with sickle cell disease, and how we manage them here on campus, um, and not necessarily just here, but just around uh, the country. We are one of the first that we're, we have a grant from the Missouri Foundation for Health to to stand up a comprehensive health center uh, a clinic for patients with sickle cell disease. First, right? Um, all there's there's one for uh, pediatric patients, um, and many across the country for pediatric patients. But what happens when you turn 18? Right? Nothing for these patients. They they have wraparound services, social work, uh, mental health professionals. Um, but as they turn 18, they're left on a world of their own. Um, and people don't realize that we're finding out through research that uh, they're likely to suffer many strokes as they age. So their, their cognitive abilities may be more impaired as an adult than a child, yet none of the resources there are there to support them through their, through their care. And that the largest drop-off from mortality is between the ages of 18 and 24 for that population, wow. right? So, so how is that possible? How is it possible that they're doing just fine and then they die because they turned 18? Lack of imagination. How is that possible? Yeah, I just that's so powerful. You know, lack of imagination, and I think, you know, I, I want to say, you know, to everyone who's gonna hear that, you know, it's on it, from all perspectives, right? Because I feel like also sometimes even as administrators, as you know, when we when we get into these roles, when we get into the system, it it is challenging not to become the system, right? It is mm-hmm. challenging to not imagine, you know, just a different world. So I I just. That's amazing. Very, very powerful. So I, I just echo echo that 110%. Great lesson for everyone to take home. And so kind of just, you know, expanding that, I think you, you had a lot of good stuff in there, especially, you know, for our community. Um, but, you know, looking at the healthcare industry as a whole, uh, you know, yeah. over the course of the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, what do you think is just going to be the biggest challenge that we see coming down the pipeline that's going to affect all of us as a system? Um, I would say, you know, my, uh, I, I was very fortunate to be named an Eisenhower Fellow in 2018, uh, where uh, my Eisenhower uh, Fellowship topic was the healthcare workforce shortage. Um, and I had the pleasure and the privilege of studying uh, workforce development models in, in Australia and in, in Rwanda. And I will say, you know, U.S. is no different. As a matter of fact, when I was in 
specifically actually in, in Rwanda, development group, they thought, well, why are you here? Don't you guys have everything figured out? I'm like, no, we do not. As a matter of fact, Rwanda, one of the first uh, African nations to, um, to implement universal health care, um, uh, just as a, as a side note. Um, and so they, they are moving along, I think, at a faster rate than we are here in the United States and understanding how do you derive an economic model that sustains itself? Um, and how do you build uh, a robust workforce um, that's capable of rendering that care? Not, not only having the workforce, but having it work in a way that's meaningful and in places where um, the care is needed. Um, and so, and Australia was chosen for that part in a way because they have in, you know, heavy population centers and a lot of open and wide and rural spaces, much like the U.S. So it's sort of a microcosm in that way. Um, but everyone's facing the same challenge globally. Um, and I think over the next 50 years, if we don't rethink how we, and I think this is why I love being in an academic medical center where you have uh, both uh, the education arm, the research, um, and, the, and the care um, side, um, provider services, patient care. Um, and I think it, it will take um, understanding how do we build a pipeline of providers that understands the issues of today, um, research and innovation, uh, to make sure we maximize what we can from a care delivery standpoint. Um, but um, but I will say the next 50 years, uh, I, I think if we don't figure out how to produce more, um, not only produce more, but produce more with a different mindset and with the technology and, and, the, and the resources needed, um, and having them work together in a more collaborative way um, that's tied into the social fabric. So that's one arm. And then the other arm is that we spend twice as much on healthcare and have as much on social services. And so until we decide we want to uplift the, so, you know, the, health, the safety net, social safety net in this country and make sure that everyone has an opportunity, and that's, what it, that's the challenge right there, it's the opportunity. Not that we need to give everybody something, but we owe everybody the opportunity to, to live a healthy and successful and uh, financially um, uh, sustainable life. Um, and unless we deal with the social ills of this country in the next 50 years, I don't know. I, I don't know what healthcare is going to look like. Um, so I think we need to invest more in the pipeline of providers. We need to change how these providers work, and we need to invest more in the safety net uh, in, in this country in a way that allows for upward mobility and reduction in poverty. And those those things, I think, will reshape and provide us a pathway to sustainability in healthcare in the United States. And so kind of related but separate topic, you know, we're also looking to increase sustainability in the U.S. healthcare systems in terms of diverse leadership. And, you know, in the National Association of Health Service Executives, we have a lot of young professionals of, of color and, and other diverse backgrounds, and I think they could really learn from someone like you. So what is one piece of advice you would give to any aspiring healthcare professional? One, okay, that's lie. I'm going to give you about three. I'm just kidding. Um, so, so the most important, most important one, I think, is um, uh, being patient enough to understand the difference between knowledge and experience. Think about that. You know, I, I think senior leaders always say, "Well, you know, pay your dues," right? And as younger leaders, we're like, "Well, I don't, I don't want to sit around forever." But what, what we're missing there is it's not that you don't know enough to do the work, um, but do you have enough experience? So think about it, right? When you first got your, your driver's license, you read the book, you know all the rules, 
you know how to turn the car on and get it to go and stop. But until you're driven in enough different road conditions, would you trust yourself driving in a snowstorm if you've only lived in Alabama? I, I remember the first time I moved from Alabama to St. Louis, my first – the car, I don't know, it did how, how many donuts, I have no idea. I, I kind of just let the car slide right back into its parking space. I never drove the car again during the winter. Um, but now, you know, living in St. Louis for eight years, I can do it now with my eyes closed. No, but my eyes open technically, but, you know, much more proficiently. Um, and so understanding that um, there's a dance between what you know and then having enough um, cycles within an operation so that you have enough experience to handle things that may come your way that are unusual. And so, um, so make sure you're gaining knowledge and experience along the way. And then jumping off of that, uh, a mentor of mine told me that um, no one's going to hand you anything, right? So if you want something, you have to go get it. So, uh, again, there's a dance between being eager, taking initiative, but also being patient enough to develop, you know, enough um, experience to, to be able to do the work. Um, and so, um, and I will close um, with the last um, um, statement of staying principled and staying focused on, on um, what centers you. Uh, because a lot of things may come your way or people or, or what have you that may push you off of who you, who you are. And so knowing who you are is, is critical to your success and having a, a strong, um, strong ethics, um, moral compass that guides you through the work, um, I think is helpful. And then, um, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela always says, I never lose. I either win or I learn. Um, so, um, so along the way, you know, uh, you will pick up some wins, and then the other times, you're just going to learn a hell of a lot. <laughs> oh, man, I definitely, I love that. I appreciate that. I think that the, the first piece, knowledge versus experience, still still kind of hit me. Like, ooh, I need to. Oh, yeah, I struggle with it. <laughs> I need to be a little patient. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, um, and so I actually have it here in my, in my office. Uh, my mentor, uh, Rick Stanton, who's the chief business officer for the School of Medicine, always says that the early bird gets a worm, but it's the second mouse that gets the cheese. And so, <laughs> so, uh, so there's times that, again, it goes, you know, it's going to hand you anything. So you have to go get it and be eager and take initiative and have drive. Uh, but you also have to be um, uh, patient enough uh, to, to wait um, to this right moment uh, to jump on things. So, uh, but yeah, you're right. Knowledge versus experience. Yes. It's good to have both. Excellent. So um, this is good. I think we're at a good point, Nigel. Did you want to bring in kind of the, the rapid fire, you know, question section? Oh, Lord. I'm not sure if I'm ready. Let me back up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so we've we finished up with all the hard-hitting questions now, so let's lighten the mood a little bit. I'm going to hit you with five rapid fire questions. Hit me with the first thing that comes to your mind just so that we can get to know you and how you think just a little bit more. So, All right, then, then we, have to do, we may have to do two takes of this, right? Because, um, but we'll try. I'll be patient. Let's All go. right. First question, toilet paper, over or under? <laughs> over. Is cereal a soup? No. Cardio or weights? Whew, that's a tough one. Uh, Cardio. Best type of cheese? Cheddar. Oh, Funny. no. I take that back. Brie. Oh. Funniest joke you know by heart? 
that's a, that's a good one. Uh, funniest joke that I know by heart. Man, I'm about to skip and come back to that one. I don't, I don't. I, well, I, I thought for to... sure you as the dad would have a couple oh, of heaters. Oh, my, my son waiting. has a my son has a whole bunch. He has his book where like all these um uh these like like these kid jokes, these Halloween jokes, and for some reason I'm blanking on all of them right now. Like such, a, my son is going to kill me when he hears this. He's going to be like, Dad, I, I tell you three jokes every day. Uh, so uh, I, I will I will take the I will take the loss on that one. And I, and I appreciate the uh, invitation to speak with uh, you two fine gentlemen this evening. It's been great. Well, that's it for this month's episode of the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Learn more about the National Association of Healthcare Executives at nahse.org and join us next month for another exciting episode.